0: Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as a social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders in the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is going to discuss the newest guidelines that address the medical management of chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Matt Rank to our episode today. Dr. Rank is a professor of medicine and division chair of allergy, asthma, and clinical immunology at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. Dr. Rank recently served as chair of the Health Equity Technology and Quality Planning Committee for the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and is a current member of the Joint Task Force on Practice Parameters. And most importantly, he's the lead author for the parameters and guidelines that we're going to be discussing today. And with that, Dr. Rank, thank you so much for taking time to join us, and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Dave. Really
0: glad to be here. No, I think that this is these are wonderful guidelines, and and your perspective is going to be very useful for our listeners. And of course, we'll we'll provide links to everybody so you can read this on your own. Uh, and to be honest with you, I, I debated whether to include this, but I'm sure it's going to come out sooner or later. So for our listeners out there, Dr. Rank and I have known each other for 20 years. I can't believe it's been that long. Uh, and in fact, we were interns and residents together at what was then Columbus Children's Hospital, which is now Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, so I, you know, if we could start there, maybe can you just discuss your career path? after residency and how you got to where you are today?
1: Uh, First of all, I'm glad you brought this up and I'm glad to have known you for the past 20 years. Indeed, we started as interns together. I stayed in residency for four years in the MedPeds program. I was lucky enough to have you as my chief resident, my fourth year in residency. I remember those times and I really appreciated the sense of humor and your teaching skills and particularly remember your leadership in the morning report sessions. So, some really um, fond memories to to bring back there. After residency, I trained in allergy immunology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And I had lots of great role models and mentors there that helped stoke an interest in research. And I began to develop a clinical focus on airway diseases like asthma and chronic rhinosinusitis. I've been really fortunate to stay with Mayo, first in Minnesota uh, as faculty, and now um, for the past 10 years or so in Arizona. I've had lots of chances to develop research skills, and I've had lots of mentors both within the walls of Mayo and outside of Mayo, including many people on the joint task force who have helped me um, learn more about clinical guidelines and put me in position to participate in a clinical guideline like like the one we're going to discuss.
0: Well, thank you for your kind words. And Matt, I I loved working with you then and now, and I always remember your – boy, your your calm demeanor, no matter what the situation was, which includes, you know, up to today and your thoughtfulness and perspective, which, you know, it's no surprise to me that you're a lead author on guidelines such as these, because you really have a great way of just kind of looking at the big picture and and, uh, getting things down to sort of the brass tacks and what matters most. And and remind me when I see you next, I'll give you that 20 bucks I owe you for saying those unsolicited kind words about me, but (laughs) so, all right, we don't need to bore our listeners any longer, Uh, but we have been fortunate to, to. to have other members of the Joint Task Force on our podcast to discuss other parameters um, over the past couple of years. Uh, how long have you been a member of the Joint Task Force and what do you enjoy most about being a part of it?
1: I joined the JTF, the, the Joint Task Force, in 2016 and there are a couple things that are really stand out to me about what makes JTF a lot of fun to be a member of and to participate in. Uh, first, it's the people on the team. Uh, picture a very dedicated group with a strong sense of volunteerism all with the goal of trying to get the best possible information to the hands of our colleagues to make the best possible clinical recommendations that's that's easily the best part i think um, the second best part is I've, i've kind of grown to like some of the detail oriented analytical work that goes along with trying to bring all the data together and sort in all the different threads and pieces that need to go in to try to make the best
0: quality uh, guidelines. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of work for sure. Uh, and you were one of the um, people most instrumental in helping me understand uh, what grade is. Uh, and you know, it, it took a really, really long time to grasp these concepts. It's almost like a paradigm shift in, uh, in ways of, of traditional practice parameters and guidelines. So I, I think it would be a great place to start if you could, um, for our listeners, discuss the specifics related to what grade is and why it was chosen for these guidelines in particular.
1: Sure, I'm glad to sort of outline kind of what we use that's great, this grade this grade methodology, and also would just add that I'm still learning a lot about these different methods. There are constantly new um, articles out describing different ways of using guideline methodology in order to get to the most uh, you know the best the best guideline. Grades an acronym, and it stands for grading of recommendations assessments. And development, development, and evaluation, but really, it's in its simplest form. It's really an accepted and transparent method for taking information from a lot of different places and then cr- being able to critique the information. It's there are several publications and several educational efforts surrounding GRADE to help us understand how to apply it to guidelines. And one of our challenges in JTF is not only to learn how to apply GRADE but then how to explain it to our colleagues who are our ultimate stakeholders for this information. The reason we chose GRADE for this guideline was because we thought it was the best possible method um, to evaluate the treatments that were under consideration, and we thought it would give us the the sort of the highest quality guideline.
0: And uh, I think in the simplest form, at least the way my brain thinks about it, traditional parameters or guidelines kind of uh you know look at all of the evidence surrounding a mm-hmm. disease state or, or treatment perhaps but GRADE really hones in on specific questions about mm-hmm. about these uh, these different topics would you agree with that yes i, I think
1: um, for people that are reading and digesting our guidelines these two different types the traditional practice parameter that we've been as a JTF group um working on for many years is more broad in scope and will potentially include like almost every almost every but not everything obviously most things that you'd think about wanting to know about a topic so if you if the topic was chronic rhinosinusitis it may be talking about diagnosis it may be talking Mm -hmm. about 20 different treatment options it may be talking about prognosis whereas in grade we generally narrow the scope of the question uh, to be quite specific, uh, either related to treatment or diagnostic testing or potentially or prognosis. And then we go really deep into a rigorous search of the evidence using the best possible methods and detailed methods to synthesize the information and do a lot of rating and evaluating for different reasons or threats to why the results might not be valid and end up with, I think, what I would say is a more confident idea about what the evidence is, but a narrower scope. So somebody who's reading the guideline may say, well, what about this? We didn't, they didn't really talk about this at all. And that's one of the, one of the challenges of doing a great guideline with narrowly focused questions is it's just not comprehensive
0: to the topic. Mm -hmm. No, I I like how you describe that. And that'll, uh, you know, become apparent momentarily as we discuss really just three questions that these guidelines address. Mm -hmm. Uh, But before we get there, uh, you know, the the Reader's Digest version of of these guidelines are really looking at the specific recommendations that are made. Uh, And I think it's important for people to understand how this process uh, comes about and what the recommendations mean. So can you discuss you know, uh, the, how to determine both the strength of each recommendation as well as the certainty of evidence, and then walk us through how these should be interpreted or applied to clinical practice?
1: Yeah. So um, the first thing we do after putting the evidence together, so we look at, say, there are 10 studies that, that um, met our inclusion in Inclusion and exclusion criteria, which by the way we preset before we before we go and search for the evidence is We try to estimate how certain we are in that say that treatment effect So the average treatment effect for the average person getting this treatment is going to be this this size of effect for this outcome and we want to get an assessment about how certain we are that that's that that's closest to truth and in order to do that we have a series of things that GRADE kind of helps us make sure we assess and put those all together to get an ultimate rating of how certain we are about that evidence and the the four categories we could end up with would be very low low moderate or high and once we have that certainty of evidence then we take that information and we also fold in a whole bunch of other contextual factors that may matter To decide on how to make uh, what what recommendation strength to make. So the format we use is called evidence to decision, and it guides us through a number of different contextual factors that ultimately lead to us as a group, as a guideline panel, to to decide the both the the direction of the recommend of of the statement. So it could be a for the treatment or against the treatment. And also, whether we're going to make a strong recommendation, which ends up being like, we use the word recommend, we recommend this treatment, that's a strong statement, or if we have some, if we don't think every person should get this treatment or almost every person should get this treatment, which is what's implied in a recommendation or a strong recommendation statement, we make a conditional statement. And in our guideline language, we suggest that intervention. Now, when we and what what we mean by that is, we suggest this. We suggest for this treatment. That means that we think the majority of people will probably benefit from that treatment, would probably want that treatment, and that would be a good balance of 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 benefit to benefit to harm for them. However, there may be many people who would opt not to have that treatment, or who may not benefit from that treatment, and that conditional recommendation really calls for us to individualize that recommendation by using a process called shared decision making so just to kind of i i I meandered a little bit there but i want to go back we can suggest which would be conditional we can recommend which would be strong and we can be for or against
0: um so you know it goes back to also just the word guidelines right um these these aren't uh black and white, it's not 100% every patient or every clinician should or needs to apply this to each patient. Um, It really does require nuance and understanding and context. And um, that's kind of how these are set up. Would you agree with that?
1: Completely. I think that's very well said. We want to show the evidence, but there are a lot of factors that can be brought in that we can't account for that conversation between the clinician and their patient may draw out and may cause somebody to select something that may be different than what the guideline may suggest or even recommend. Even a recommendation, a strong statement, doesn't mean that every single person should have this treatment.
0: And that leads us to something that you just mentioned, shared decision-making. So as we discuss these guidelines, and more importantly, as people read through them on their own, how do you think they should consider shared decision making within the context of the different recommendations? I like I like your word conversation as well. I think that's really important. Right. It's also the title of this podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> um,
1: but I, I think I think we should think a lot about shared decision making, and I think we should get beyond the point where it's almost like a buzzword, where um, you know shared decision making should be should be used in this situation. So I want to give that a little bit more context. I think that's an important thing. First, a lot of the guidelines that we, a, a lot of this, um statements that we make as a guideline group are conditional. In fact, I would hazard a guess if we were to systematically look at every one we've done in the past five years and count strong versus conditional, that 75% of them are going to be conditional. It's just based on how confident we are of, of the evidence and all those different contextual pieces of information that are used to ultimately make that, make that statement. Therefore, shared decision-making comes into play a lot. Um, so when I, um, I'm fortunate enough within our medical school to teach a couple of courses on shared decision-making to our students. And I've been instructed as a teacher to always start with the why. Why does this matter to students? And I start by saying, I work on clinical guidelines. I look at evidence, I spend a lot of time doing that. And a lot of times we end up with conditional recommendations, which means we really need to talk to our patients, have that conversation, understand their their values or preferences, and bring those in to ultimately come to the best decision for that patient. And that's the why. The what, though, I think is some, or the the how, I think, um, like the what and the how of shared decision-making is something that may not get as much attention um, explicitly, at least in our guidelines. and we'll, I think, I think we'll talk a little bit more about how we have remarks that are used in the guideline to help guide some of that conversation. But I wanted to to go back and just say, here's one way to approach shared decision making with your patients that we've been working with um, in our medical student teaching that I think has has landed pretty well with them. One of the family medicine physicians who I co-teach this course with had recently sent me a practical guideline about how to incorporate shared decision-making into everyday encounters. And he has been challenging me as a very practical and sharp person to find simpler and more practical ways for students to get into the sharing decision-making discussions for patients. And the model that he sent me has three simple steps. And the steps are team talk, option talk, and decision talk. And the first really sets the table. It makes sure patients are aware that this is gonna be a partnership, we're gonna have a conversation, we're gonna have a discussion, we're gonna work together to come to the best decision. The second part is simple, it's laying out the options. So for patients who have chronic rhinosinusitis and nasal polyposis, we're gonna be talking shortly about three main options that we looked at within this guideline, and we may need to talk about a few of these that might be most relevant to the patient's situation. Finally, the third step, Uh, which is the decision talk is bringing the patient's values and preferences into that decision. Those three simple steps are ways to kind of uh, roadmap that discussion and make sure we have that, make sure we include the patient's input in how we make that decision.
0: Yeah I, I like that a lot and and of course in today's world and the you know the way we we have so many constraints on our time and external factors that really uh you know shape the way that we were able to practice medicine it it's hard to do so it just it does take a lot of practice um and I I think simplifying it to the point where it makes it easy to remember the different steps is is an important way to approach it Okay, so I, I think we've really set the stage very nicely for how people should think through the information that's presented in these guidelines. And now I'd like to really get into the specifics if that's okay with you. Great. Um, all right, great. So the topic of these guidelines that, you know, is specifically chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis. So let's just start by having you define the diagnosis and offer some insight into the typical clinical course, as well as symptoms that patients experience.
1: The cardinal symptoms of chronic rhinosinusitis with, uh, of chronic rhinosinusitis are nasal blockage or nasal obstruction. So patients will tell you they have difficulty breathing in and out of their nose, thick nasal discharge, a little bit different than that clear bilateral drippy nose that a lot of patients may may describe, a reduced and sometimes completely absent sense of smell, and facial pressure, sometimes also described as as headache in certain areas of the face. Those symptoms, of course, can have pretty far-reaching effects on quality of life, whether it's on sleep, concentration, um, uh, product uh, productivity at work, productivity at school, um, exercise, a, a lot of different ways that that can impact somebody's overall quality of life. Patients who have nasal polyps are one subset of the overall chronic rhinosinusitis group. So not everybody with chronic rhinosinusitis has nasal polyps. We zeroed in on the nasal polyp patients primarily because there's a lot of recent research, clinical trials, other information that was new and we really wanted to digest that and bring that bring that forward to our stakeholders, the, the people who are going to be reading and using our guidelines. The General onset of this problem, this chronic rhinosinusitis, is usually somewhere between the ages of 20 and 60. Certainly, I've had patients in their teen years and over 60 who first developed this problem, but it's mostly a disease of young to middle adulthood. The usual thing that patients will tell us about when they first have this problem is, it's like they had a head cold and just never got better. The other really important thing for patients to understand, and I think most of us sort of people who are treating this problem intrinsically understand, is that this is going to be a chronic problem for most patients. We don't have a cure for it. There may be a small number of patients when undergoing treatment that it seems like the problem goes away or goes in remission, but most of the people, this is something we're going to be managing and not curing, at least not yet.
0: Is there a certain uh, period of time that patients need to exhibit these symptoms before they can establish the diagnosis of chronic rhinosinusitis?
1: That's a great question and sh- it should have been in my initial answer. Most people would say 12 weeks. That's, ca- that's mm-hmm. the most accepted definition. So these symptoms persist for more than 12 weeks. These, pro- these symptoms that are occurring for shorter times are generally termed acute sinusitis or sometimes subacute sinusitis. And those treatments are thought to be different or are different um, in, uh, than the recommendations we're going to be talking about, particularly for people who have chronic and mm-hmm. also people who have nasal polyps.
0: Okay. And then is there some gold standard diagnostic test that somebody can easily perform hmm. that says, yep, that's exactly what you have? Or is it more <laughs> of the, the clinical scenario that has to be put together?
1: That's a great question. And that's um, it's been debated a little bit, especially from a resource standpoint, about how we decide to or not to decide to make this diagnosis and there are some pitfalls in making this diagnosis only based on clinical and the pitfalls are that if you have some of these symptoms and then we search for more objective evidence that we won't find it in a lot of patients so a number of patients can exhibit these symptoms for say 8 to 12 weeks and then you can go do uh, search for more objective information say with either a sinus ct scan and you'll find absence of sinus disease then you need to work through your differential diagnosis and think about something other than that. And the other way that's really uh, pretty helpful and maybe even a little bit less, um, it may be a first step before a sinus CT scan, which would be to perform a nasal endoscopy exam, performed usually by an ENT expert or sometimes as some allergy specialist to inspect for things like swelling, um, purulent secretions, and sometimes nasal polyps, that examination can sometimes reveal the diagnosis. If the polyps are large enough, you don't always necessarily need an endoscope to see them, especially if they're larger, like a grade three or grade four. And sometimes the simple handheld otoscope examination can reveal the diagnosis as well. But the summary point, and I think while you're raising this, Dave, is that we are going to be wrong if we just go based on clinical symptoms. The debate could be if we make a clinical diagnosis in the absence of doing imaging or more advanced um, advanced examination of the nose and treat empirically at first, that is an argument that a lot of people will make from a resource standpoint to limit exposure to imaging and to endoscopy. That said, um, the arguments have been made that a more accurate diagnosis at the front end is better for the patient, gets them closer to their definitive treatments.
0: Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's also important as people think through these guidelines and, and listen to the rest of this conversation that we're going to have, that it, you have to have the right diagnosis as well, right? So as you mentioned, we're not discussing acute rhinosinusitis <laughs> uh, or you know other right. causes of, of nasal polyps and things like that um now um i don't know if i'm going to make it through the rest of the podcast if i have to keep saying chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis so if it's okay with you i think i'm just going to substitute crs with np would that be all right yes all right thank you (laughs) so can you tell (laughs) us can you tell us about aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease and how it relates to yet differs from crs with np Sure.
1: I think the easiest way to think about aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease is that it is a subtype of CRS with NP. Mm -hmm. It's important to know that not everybody calls this problem aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease. Some people call it NSAID exacerbated respiratory disease because it usually means that almost all NSAIDs will provoke an acute respiratory reaction in these patients. Before aspirin exacerbated and NSAID exacerbated, there were other names for this problem, including including aspirin-intolerant asthma, Thampners triad, aspirin triad. And so they all really are describing this problem where patients with nasal polyps and a- asthma take an NSAID and have an acute respiratory reaction. And it clues us in that they have this special kind of CRS with NP that matters because the treatments may be somewhat unique to this category of patients for some for some of the treatments. So let me just back up a minute and review this. So we have all patients with PRS, some of those patients have NP, and some of the patients with NP are sensitive to aspirin. So we're making these subcategories off of subcategories And we're doing this because we're trying to refine what we understand and know about each patient in a way that we can offer them individualized treatment.
0: Um, And that's, I think, what we're going to talk about next with the different recommendations. But before we get to that, uh, I'd like for you to go back and just uh, remark again upon the, the impact on quality of life for those patients who have CRS with NP, uh, and also perhaps discuss the different stakeholders that um, these guidelines are targeted towards.
1: Yeah, this is kind of like the why of the guidelines question, like when we're teaching our medical students about shared decision-making, why does it matter? Um, Why does does CRS with NP matter? Uh, It's because it has a large negative effect on people's quality of life, people who have this condition. And one of the things that we that we have to do early on in the guideline process is we have to consider which outcomes we're going to value the most. In order to do that, we need input from people, uh, and we need input from a variety excuse me of stakeholders. And as a result, we go to the literature to look at for information. We talk with stakeholders to get this information, and in this case. There had been a couple of studies we found in the literature. One of our, actually, one of our um, worker members had discovered these that really focus on which outcomes seem to matter most to patients. And obviously those are the ones that we want to make as our most important outcomes. And those are the things that are going to drive our recommendations more than maybe outcomes that matter less to patients. So in this case, I don't think anybody would be surprised to hear that patients said, what bothers me the most about having this condition is the symptoms that go along with this, the blockage of my nose, the inability to smell, and how those affect my quality of life, my sleep, my concentration, my exercise, my productivity, etc. So we really made symptoms and disease related quality of life as our two critical outcomes that we focused on and the outcomes for these interventions are so the inter the interventions that were used and their effect on these outcomes really drive the overall statement that we make at the end. There are other outcomes that you'd say, like, could be important. So what about the size of their nasal polyps? If somebody looks in the nose and grades it, what about if they took CT scans of all these patients? What about if we just measured their sense of smell? Uh, What about if we measure this specific symptom? And so there are some other things that probably matter to patients, but maybe aren't quite as critical, and those, those outcomes are things we look at as well. Most patients don't care what their sinus CT scan score is. They care how they feel. So we really want to try to be careful about getting those outcomes that are the most important to patients um, as the things that drive our decisions. Mm, okay. um, and why, again, why does this matter? Uh, because we want to find interventions that can improve patients' disease-specific quality of life and their symptoms so that they have a higher quality of life.
0: Okay. Well, I, let's get into it. I, you know, if, it, if it's okay with you, uh, I think to help orient our listeners, we'll just discuss each recommendation separately. There's only really three to discuss here. And uh, starting with recommendation one, number one, this states that in people with CRS with NP, the guideline panel suggests intranasal corticosteroid rather than no intranasal corticosteroid. So can you provide some commentary on why this was chosen as a question in the first place to evaluate and what the evidence demonstrates?
1: Right, so when we first convened the work group, we had a broad discussion about different questions that we thought would be important to answer. And this was one that easily came to the top because multiple experts in the field described using these treatments. There were several new studies that were brought forward in the period since a guideline had last been created, uh, by our group at least. And we wanted to be able to take all this information and advise our, advise our stakeholders about, about these treatments. The main finding is that topical steroids can help people who have CRS with MP. It's, it can be helpful. Our guideline statement was we made a suggestion to use them. That's a conditional recommendation. The main reason we didn't end up making a strong recommendation because the Size of the benefit of the treatment was pretty small. The other, I think, important finding that came out of the work that we did with the analysis was that the way that you get topical steroids into the nose and sinuses probably matters. We were able to compare the different delivery methods so, spraying things in the nose, rinsing things in the nose, putting stents with steroids on in the nose using a novel exhalation delivery system to get things in the nose those were the ones that probably had the most consistently favorable results but there appears to be some variability with the delivery method and how and how well these work overall still it wasn't a strong recommendation because the
0: size of the treatment effect wasn't that big and as a point of clarification and hopefully it's obvious there this Specifically, did not look at any comparisons between intranasal corticosteroids with other types of medications, such as uh, leukotriene modifiers or other types of nasal sprays or antihistamines or things like that. Is that correct? Correct.
1: So, when we set out to study these questions, we decided what we thought was were the most likely treatment options, medical treatment options for this condition. And the ones with the newest information and answer those questions we did not include in the network of comparisons other things that we thought had either an lower likelihood of being beneficial because of previous uh, lack of information or or or, uh, negative studies and really for this question only compared within the Types of topical steroids to each other. So that's how we built our network of comparison.
0: Yeah, I, I like that description because it's sort of like you're, you're starting at the top of the mountain of evidence, right? Of you, you already know going in through the work group panel and the experts that you have and understanding the evidence in the literature that there's really not much of a point to go through You know 20 different treatment options because it's they really haven't demonstrated much benefit um, to date and to really hone in on on those that have so far, Um, and you know you mentioned also newer evidence which gets us to recommendation two, which states that in people with CRS with NP the guideline panel suggests biologics rather than no biologics. So can you first describe the biologics that are approved for use, at least in the United States of America, um, in the treatment of CRS with NP, and then discuss some of the specifics related to this recommendation?
1: There are three biologics currently approved for use for people who have CRS with NP. Now, these are specifically indicated for NP. If patients have other comorbid conditions like asthma, there are potentially other options. Mm -hmm. Those three biologics are dupilumab, mepolizumab, and omalizumab. We, as part of our process, analyzed these three plus others, others that have been studied and met the inclusion-exclusion criteria we set forward. In this guideline, we made, uh, our guideline statement was that we suggested biologics for people with CRS with NP. The reasons why we didn't make a strong recommendation were several contextual factors, such as there were situations where it may not make sense to use biologics. For example, if they tried other treatments like topical corticosteroids or surgery, and their quality of life got better, they probably wouldn't need an asthma, or uh, excuse me, a biologic like these three. But in situations where they had tried other treatments and still had a significant impact on their quality of life, this treatment then could be considered. So these are some of the remarks or the contextual information that is really important to, to factor in when you're individualizing these treatment recommendations for your patient. Another another, uh, sorry, contextual situation where we may decide to use a biologic would be when somebody else has another condition that calls for that biologic. So, for example, somebody may have asthma that's poorly controlled with uh, inhaled steroid and and a few other uh, inhaled or other treatments, that might call for use of biologic, and that biologic also may have the added benefit of addressing the nasal polyps in a favorable way. So, it's really important to, to consider these additional pieces of information when trying to individualize a conditional recommendation like this.
0: and we we've had other podcasts um within the past calendar year of you know where we discuss how to think through choosing the right biologic for each patient and as you mentioned uh, you know it's not just you have a diagnosis and then you you check the box and say there here's a biologic for you it really is being thoughtful about the mechanism of action and also the comorbid conditions that, that it may or may not benefit Uh, from use of that specific biologic and then you know do the guidelines actually get into you know how long you should use the biologic for to see if there is any benefit Uh, and if they don't do you have any perspective on that
1: yeah uh, we did not uh, dive into length of treatment Um, there are some recommendations that come from other recent guidelines uh, two other recent guidelines that address crs with mp are the ICAR-RS, and EPOS 2020 guidelines. These guidelines talk about treatment trials somewhere in the six-month range. for trying to decide if we think we're making a difference and suggest some different criteria that can be used to decide whether to stop and abandon treatment because it's just not being effective enough. My perspective on this is to be intentional about the outcomes you're trying to achieve with each patient, set times when you're going to reassess to whether you're going to achieve these outcomes. And if you are not achieving those outcomes, stop Mm -hmm. and either try a different biologic because there may be some differential effects in each patient or reevaluate, consider other options, consider other diagnoses. But what I see in practice is often almost a semi-infinite trial of biologics, even when they're not helping people, and find myself taking people off of biologics when that's the case. I'll give you a couple of maybe more specific examples. So if we have a patient who comes in with CRS with NP, and they have an occupation where their sense of smell is really important to them, maybe they are a chef, maybe they are a police officer. Um, And that's the primary thing they want us to help with, is to help Restore or improve their sense of smell, and that's what drives our decision to use a biologic. Then we need to be able to assess that in a way, have a time frame, whether it's somewhere between three to six months, to decide if it's working, and then use that to decide whether we should continue or stop.
0: that makes sense um yeah and i think it you know also works on the other end too of we can't expect benefit after you know one injection (laughs) so uh just again goes back to understanding why we're using these and and what we're looking for in regards to outcomes now the the third recommendation is specific towards what you just discussed a few moments ago of the the entity known as aspirin or NSAID exacerbated respiratory disease and this recommendation suggests aspirin therapy after desensitization rather than no aspirin therapy after desensitization. But maybe let's start with, just by having you discuss why and how aspirin desensitization is done in these patients.
1: Yeah, the purpose of aspirin desensitization is to treat the nasal polyps and the sinus disease. And in particular, most of these studies are done to try to prevent polyps from growing back. Shortly after polyps are either removed surgically or they're treated with systemic corticosteroid to make them small, We may initiate an aspirin desensitization, which is done in a very careful and supervised setting with the hopes that by being on aspirin long-term, it will prevent the polyps from coming back or reduce the risk or increase the length of time it takes for them to grow back. The important thing about the how this is done is the medically supervised situation in a setting where people are prepared to deal with the acute respiratory reaction that often accompanies the attempts to desensitize somebody. So we do this in our office with all the resuscitation um, and uh, experts to be able to recognize and treat people who have these respiratory reactions, such as wheezing, chest tightness, shortness of breath, major uh, nasal obstruction. Once you get beyond that point where they have that respiratory reaction, then they end up taking the aspirin over the long term.
0: And patients use it regularly,
1: and the hope, again, is that their polyps are less likely to
0: grow back. And with the recommendation, uh, it, again, suggests aspirin therapy after desensitization rather than not using aspirin therapy. So what are some of the pros and cons to consider regarding this long-term aspirin therapy after desensitization?
1: Yes. Now, you'll notice a similar theme. All three recommendations that we made in this guideline are conditional, Mm -hmm. which again means there's going to be context, so pros and cons. I like how you – it's another way of saying, you know, what are the situations where one person may reasonably select aspirin desensitization and another person wouldn't? So the main pros of doing aspirin desensitization are it's a way to prevent the polyps from growing back. It's a relatively inexpensive way to do that. Aspirin's an inexpensive medication. And we have pretty good information that it can make a pretty big treatment impact when it's used. The cons for the times when you might not want to use aspirin desensitization is when the risks are higher of having harm. And that's, that's one of the main things that the literature has told us about aspirin desensitization. There are some short term risks of having that acute reaction during the desensitization that can usually be managed several uh, large cohorts of patients have been described at multiple different centers about the safety of doing these desensitizations and this very small number of people who are going to have severe respiratory reactions and require more intervention than simply things like inhalers. And then there's the long-term risk of being on aspirin over the long term. And those risks are mainly related to gastrointestinal side effects, including bleeding, and bleeding risks in general. What this comes down to is a lot of patients who have multiple chronic problems, a lot of patients who are advanced in age who may have atrial fibrillation and are on anticoagulation, may have had ulcers, may have had a GI bleed. Those are the type of patients we're generally going to want to steer away from for asthma desensitization. There may be some contexts where it makes sense for those patients, but in the, for the most part, we're going to think, that the harms may be a little bit
0: higher for those people. And we're gonna think about looking at other options first. Mm. And of course, I imagine that this is all a shared decision-making conversation with each patient uh, that needs to consider um, their own values as well when you discuss these different pros and cons and, and risks and benefits. Well, uh, before we depart you know, the specific recommendations, are there other aspects of this third recommendation that should be discussed to help our listeners better understand any important nuance?
1: Yeah. Um I think the other thing that I want to highlight here is that the evidence for aspirin was tied into a network where we also looked at biologics together mm. and the team that did this work I think was clever to put them together because they are often um, considered together in a patient with aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease as, as options that were weighing back and forth and both of the treatment options aspirin therapy and biologics seem to have a pretty large treatment effect that's been a a beneficial large treatment effect meaning it's likely to make a pretty large impact on the quality of life and the symptoms patients had which is different than what the topical steroids told us what the information Mm -hmm. told us which was that the effect was going to be pretty small but then, once you look at aspirin desensitization and biologics together, again, the treatment effects are both pretty, pretty large, pretty solid. But the harm risk with aspirin really jumps out a little bit. And so, being really thoughtful about thinking about long-term increased risks with aspirin is often going to steer the decision between aspirin and biologics. I think for most for most patients.
0: No, I I appreciate you kind of describing that because, yeah, there is there's context and nuance and and things like that to consider. Um, You know, there's I I found something interesting as I was reading through um, all of the guidelines. And I'd like to focus on the final part of the introduction where uh, I'd like to directly quote one paragraph from this and then ask you why it was included. Would that be okay? Yes. Okay. so here's the quote. Bear with me. When quoting or translating recommendations from these guidelines, any qualifying remarks that accompany each recommendation should not be omitted, in parentheses, including statements regarding special circumstances and assumed values and preferences. These statements are integral to the recommendations and serve to facilitate more accurate interpretation. I'd love to pick your brain as to why that was included. What's what's the the behind-the-scenes story behind that?
1: It's to highlight and emphasize the conditional nature of these recommendations and the remarks that go along with them to help people guide, to help guide people in having these shared decision making conversations. It's what we've been talking about really for the bulk of this podcast, which is these remarks are the part that really I think are going to, are going to be the most useful to clinicians. Conditional recommendations could be viewed as challenging if you're Looking and trying to make a decision with the patient, or challenging to the patient when they say, "Well, these treatments look like they probably work, but they're not strongly recommended. So what's the deal?" And if you look just at the statement that says, "We suggest," you need the rest of that, you need the rest of what's underneath that to really, to really drive forward and make make the decision. So this is just a, a nice, solid, concise way of saying, don't separate the remarks. From the guideline statement itself, because you're going to end up not knowing what to do and how to guide that conversation.
0: Oh, I like it so much. Um, it, it's like a it's like a gentle little slap on the wrist. Of, I know what you want to do, but uh, but but don't do that <laughs> because there, there's a lot more to it than than what you may think. So uh, I I appreciate you including that. Thanks for the insight. You know, I think this conversation serves as a really nice introduction. Uh, you gave us so much insight and perspective as to the, what the guidelines state and, and some of the, um, the ways that people can really interpret them. And I do encourage our listeners to access the full version of the guidelines to really understand the methodology results and recommendations and how to apply this to clinical practice. I think the last your last discussion just really summarized that. So where can people find these guidelines? And in addition to that, are there any accompanying articles that you'd like to highlight as well?
1: The I think probably the easiest way to find it is through the Joint Task Force's website, which mm-hmm. is at allergyparameters.org. I just checked this morning and this guideline is posted as pre proof, which means that uh, it hasn't yet been corrected for the galley proofs, which are another level of editing that the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, which is the journal that will hold and publish this article, goes through. In fact, just earlier today, uh, the galley proofs email came through, so I have something to work on later today, which is mm-hmm. find out where we missed missed points that the editors picked up before it goes to its final form. But the final form is unlikely to be significantly different than the pre-proof, especially mm. in the in the major content points. And so today or whenever you listen to this podcast, you can go to parameters, the um, allergy parameters org and, and find it. Uh, we'll also update the final version once the final version is available.
0: That's great. And we can also uh, put a link on the website. So for those who access the podcast through the uh, American Academy of Allergy, Asthma Immunology website, uh, we'll be able to link to the, the, uh, the pre-proof and then the, um, the actual article in Jackie as well. Well, uh, Dr. Rank, what comes next for you? Are, you? are you leading any new Joint Task Force work groups or do you get to take a break for a little bit? I know the, there's a lot of work that goes on uh, to develop these guidelines. I'm
1: continuing in my role as a member of the Joint Task Force.
0: Which means I get to review
1: and provide suggestions to all of the different guidelines that come through. Right now, I'm between work group assignments, so I'm guessing that Dr. Shaker and Lieberman, the co-chairs of the JTF, will assign me to one of the next
0: projects. Okay. Uh, and you know, uh, what's the general timeline? You know, how long? When did you start working on on this guideline, for instance?
1: I think the the timelines of each project vary some. This project was two to two and a half years in length total. Mm -hmm. At the very beginning, again, we assemble uh, an outstanding group of experts to form a work group. We consider stakeholder input. We write a protocol, essentially, about how we're going to access the information, inclusion, exclusion criteria, what methods we're going to use. And then that becomes our roadmap for executing the project. And it takes there, – there are a number of different steps that end up uh, taking a lot of time, including some of the detailed work where we extract information, put it all together. We have multiple rounds of feedback from multiple different people, and each of those feedback rounds just takes some time.
0: Well, on behalf of our listeners and, and our members, we appreciate all the hard work that you and the work group put into this. And I uh, and, uh, look forward to reading this, you know, cover to cover. Uh, Dr. Doctor Rank, I, you know, for personal reasons and selfish reasons, it's been just great to, to talk with you and, and catch up a little bit. Uh, and I, I also think it's been a very useful conversation for our listeners. And I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Do you have any last words uh, to share with us before we depart?
1: I just want to extend my thanks to all the people who worked on the CRS with MP Guideline project, our patient stakeholders, our work group members, the other members of the Joint Task Force, and in particular, call out the project chair, Dr. Andrew Peters, and the methods co-chair, Dr. Derek Chu. Finally, I want to thank you, Dave, for the
0: opportunity to be a guest on Conversations from the World of Allergy. Yeah. Well, we, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.